0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, thank you, worship team. Well, some years ago, a, uh, the Korean Airlines flight 007 was scheduled to fly out of Anchorage, Alaska, bound straight for Seoul, Korea on a 747 passenger jet. Um, the conditions were fine. Flying was permittable. Uh, The jet was fully staffed. There were no delays, no engine problems. Everything seemed to be going just fine. However, there was a slight miscalculation that remained undetectable. Before Flight 007 knew it, it was flying over Soviet airspace in mainland Russia. Fighter jets were dispatched to intercept the 747, and the jets shot down Flight 007 killing all passengers and crew. How did a commercial plane leaving Alaska bound for Korea get shot down in Russia? What happened? Well, unknown to the crew, the computer engaging the flight navigation system had a one and a half degree routing error. It was only a small step in a wrong direction, but the longer it went on, the worse it got. Error of any degree can have devastating consequences. Our navigation system in life must be calibrated to truth because truth is the navigation system where the intention of the first step meets the expectation of the last step. Truth is the place where the departure and the destination agree. Truth is our compass with no miscalculations. How is your navigational system functioning? When times are challenging, do you stay the course or do you vary a degree or two? When politics becomes idolatry and consumes society, do you vary a bit? How do you navigate through that? When the very notion of objective and absolute truth is scoffed at, an archaic thing of the past, how do you navigate through that? When the economy seems to be on a perilous trajectory, how do you navigate through that? When truth seems to be rejected in pretty much every arena of life, how do the people of truth navigate life? Well today we're going to see that truth is our navigational tool that makes us capable to accomplish our destination. Truth is our navigational tool that makes us capable to accomplish our destination. So please if you don't have your Bibles already open, I plead with you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter three and this is where we're gonna pick it up. Last week we saw there are primarily two kinds of people in the church. We have false teachers and truth teachers. And this is one of the main issues that Paul is addressing in 2 Timothy. In the arena of the church, we have what Paul calls vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And in verse 21 of chapter 2, Paul says those who cleanse themselves from these things, referring to the error and falsehood of false teachers, become vessels of honor. And so we see this notion of clinging to truth to become a vessel of honor, usable and beneficial for God. And then we see that Paul says if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he too becomes a vessel of honor. And then he closes out chapter two with the aim of gently correcting those in opposition. In other words, not only are we supposed to be vessels of honor, but our aim is to move other people people in the church to vessels of honor, from opposing Christ to serving Christ. Well, in chapter two, there's a switch. In chapter two, there are those who refuse truth, who are recalcitrant, who continually oppose truth and reject correction, and so Paul now will move from gently correcting to avoiding them altogether. If you would put up that slide that I have This is the homiletical outline that we'll be using as our handlebars to navigate the text. So the first thing we're going to see that in the church there are those I'm going to call self-servers, and these self-servers are primarily about themselves. And what they do is they take truth, skew it, and seduce people with error, and God condemns them. And then we're gonna see that there are other people in the church, these truth teachers. I'm gonna call them today selfless sufferers. These selfless sufferers are going to be saved and delivered by God, and as they are selfless and suffer and are saved, they are commendable models by which we follow and learn from. And then we'll close out seeing how it is the sacred scriptures that keep us on track through this entire journey. It is the scriptures that sanctify us, and it is the scriptures that make us capable of reaching our destination. So beginning in verse one, Paul writes to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, times, future tense will come, for men will be, and he lays out that long vice list that Jordan read to you. And what we see there, there are 18 anti-God vices of people and society that oppose those who seek to live Christ-like. However, this isn't just a future thing. Paul will tell them in verse 6 to avoid such people as these, present tense, And so what just happened is the camera went from prophetically looking to a future day to swinging back to the present, blending the future evil with the present evil. And in a sense, what we see is future history being lived out in the present. And when Paul refers to these last days, he's referring to the time period between the resurrection and the rapture. And when he gives this long vice list, he's not trying to paint a comprehensive picture of evil, but he's trying to paint a generic picture of evil. And we find that there is a theme in it. So just stick with me for a second. I'm going to ask for some interaction. You're allowed to talk. Uh, Philadelphia is the city known as the city of brotherly. Thank you. Thank you. Philos, love. Adelphos, brother, love of a brother. That's where we get the name Philadelphia, brother, the city of brotherly love. Well, what we're gonna see here is that this long 18-unit uh, vice list is bracketed by philos words. And it begins with philos words, and it ends with philos words. And then right in the middle, there's some philos words. And that, that tells us something. They're like bookends. In verse two, we see that these anti-God people, they are literally self-lovers and money lovers. And then jump down to verse four to bracket the end of that vice list, we see that they are pleasure lovers and they are non-God lovers. And then right in the middle, we see they are not loving good. In other words, they are lovers of self Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They love not loving God and love not loving good. They love to serve themselves. They are self-servers. If we could keep that outline up the whole time, that'd be great. They are self-servers. And then when you take into account the other vices mentioned in that list, we see something else, that they're actually anti-others. Primarily self-servers and anti-others. My desk in my study looks out a window, and outside my window, just a foot or two, there is a birdhouse that hangs off the edge of my roof. This past spring, some sparrows made this birdhouse their home. They had hatchlings. The mama would fly away and come back with some food, and all I would hear was, meep, 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 meep. The mother would fly away and come back again, "Meep, meep, 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 meep. Meep, meep, meep. This went on for weeks. Meep, meep, beep. Meep, 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 meep. One time, a blue jay tried to fly into this birdhouse and, to eat them, and all I heard was me, 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 me. So, based off my brilliant observations, I determined these birds' first word was me. And whether they lived or died, all they said was me. Selfless servers live and die for themselves. May your motto, Christian, never be me. Well, something else. These self-servers are also pious pretenders. Look at verse five. They hold to a form of godliness. They maintain an appearance, an outward appearance, of religious devotion, but it's devoid of true spirituality. And in verse 6, we see that they sneak in, literally worm their way in and take captive vulnerable and gullible women in the church. This is likely referring to older widows. And they do this by using false teaching, manipulation, and seduction. Subpoint A. When you look at the end of verse 6, you see that they are weighed down with sins and led on by various. Passions or impulses, there's a sexual connotation there. And so these false teachers are seducing and manipulating gullible people out of the church. And as a result, verse seven, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because what they're learning is error and it is counterfeit spirituality. Last winter, I went bow hunting with my, fir- my friend, Ben Talenius. And in order for us to fit into our surroundings, we had to put on camouflage to look like nature. We covered our bodies with scent so that we would smell like nature. We silenced our bows and all of our equipment so that we wouldn't sound unnatural. We took on the form of nature, the smell of nature, the sound of nature for the purpose of going into nature to lure out our prey. And that is exactly what false teachers do. They have the appearance of camouflage, but it's just religious camouflage. They have the appearance of godliness, but it's just religious camouflage. They look like the real thing, they talk like the real thing, there is an error about them, but they're just seducing vulnerable people away from the truth. And here is how you know look at the end of verse five. They have denied its power. The power and presence of God's truth is not operational in their lives. And verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres, these are Pharaoh's magicians, opposed Moses, therefore opposing who? God. So these men, who are these men? These false teachers, these self-servers, their their equivalent is Janus and Jambres, also oppose the truth. Men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. These self serving, truth opposing, God denying teachers of depravity are condemned by God. Subpoint B. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice and Jambry's folly was also. So be sure, church that just as Pharaoh's magicians were overruled by God, God will overrule these self-serving false teachers, and it will be evident to all who know the truth. Just like I I mentioned last week, in order to identify counterfeit currency, you study the real thing. You familiarize yourself with the real thing. You become intimate with the truth, and it is by becoming intimate with the truth that you identify the error. And so that is how it will become evident to all. When I was a boy, I used to go to my grandmother's house for weeks on end. I loved going to my grandmother's house because everything at my grandmother's house was junk food, and it was at my disposal. And so I was I was under the impression that everything in my grandmother's house tasted better. So after days of eating nothing but ding dongs and banana pudding, kid you not. After eating nothing but ding-dongs and banana pudding, my body started to crave something with real nutritional value. So far away from the kitchen, in the formal dining room, I saw this beautiful bowl of fruit. And so I walked into there, and I saw this giant cluster of shiny grapes. And so I picked up that cluster, I pulled one off, popped it into my mouth, but there was no crunch. And I thought, that's funny, everything at grandmother's house tastes sweet. And so I took another bite, but the grape only bent. And then I noticed there wasn't grape goodness in my mouth. My gums were filled with wax. I was eating wax fruit. (laughs) Teaching false, teaching error is like feeding people wax fruit. There is no life-giving, nutritional value to it. But feeding people God's truth moves and nourishes people from sinlessness to righteousness, from ungodliness to godliness, from error to truth. And remember, truth is our navigational system with no miscalculation, where the departure and the destination agree. So... How do we know our navigation system is on point? Well, now we come to point two, the selfless servers. Paul, writing to Timothy, specifically now, he's transitioned from referring to these self-serving false teachers to directly speaking to Timothy. He says, now you, or but you, Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my perseverance. What we have here is a virtue list that contrasts the vice list mentioned of the false teachers. And what Paul is doing here is he is portraying himself as a commendable model for Timothy and all others to follow. And verse 11 describes this commendable lifestyle. It is described by, in verse 11, persecutions and sufferings. And notice, Paul went from mentioning a number of plural nouns to, or singular nouns in verse 10 to two plural nouns in verse 11. And there's a reason for that. There is a way of life, this commendable model that Paul is calling Timothy to follow. And then there's the experience or the consequences for living this commendable life. And Paul says they are persecutions and sufferings. And so he kind of gives his biography in a nutshell here. And he says, I suffered in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. In other words, suffering is also a way of life. Unlike these self-servers, me, Paul is calling Timothy to be a selfless Sufferer. And that is why he can say in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the universal nature of that statement. All. Now, not everyone will suffer and face opposition in the same way because opposition and suffering takes many different forms. Yet many still believe that the cessation of pain and suffering and the pursuit of of goodness and pleasure is the highest value in life. But as believers, we know that Christ is our highest goal. He is our prize. And Christ suffered, Paul suffered, Timothy suffered, and all who seek to live godly lives will suffer. And if you don't want to, if you want to avoid it all, all you got to do is not live like Jesus, just have an appearance of godliness, live like the world and you will not face opposition. But if you seek to be a visible and verbal follower of Christ and give your allegiance to his kingdom principles, his kingdom precepts, and his kingdom priorities, you should expect to face opposition from the world and Satan. And verse 12 tells us something else, that perhaps part of godliness is simply standing for the truth when surrounded by a world of error because that would naturally bring opposition. But look at the end of verse 11. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. All who seek to live godly lives, the Lord will deliver you all from them. God is sufficient, church, because God delivers. Timothy, I suffered but God supported me. Timothy, you will suffer, but God will support you too. Church, you will suffer if you seek to live a godly lifestyle, but God will support and deliver you too. Deliverance is not necessarily liberation from oppression. It certainly might be that, but it might also be strengthening during suffering or an inward peace during suffering. Even removal from earth Paul considers divine deliverance in chapter four. So if you are being forced to suffer for something that violates godliness, selflessly suffer because it's commendable and God will deliver you, amen? And even though, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, their progress is actually a retrogression. Notice how Paul finishes verse 13. They are deceiving and being deceived. In other words, error feeding on error only breeds greater error. But truth sanctifies. And so this is where we move into point number three, the sacred scripture. Someone once asked, what is truth? Somewhere in some book. But a better question is, how do we access our navigational tool that makes us capable to accomplish our destination? Well, look at verse 14. You, however, or but you, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Notice in that one verse the number of knowledge-related terms. Learned, convinced, knowing, learned. It's got an education program going on here. And this is what Timothy is called to continue in. He says, These things continue in. So it begs the question what are these things? Well, within the context of 2 Timothy, we we got a pretty good idea of what that is. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said, Retain the standard of sound words or doctrine or teaching which you have heard from me. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will also be able to teach others. Move a few verses down. To verse 9 of chapter 2, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Chapter 315, the sacred writings. Chapter 316, all scripture. Chapter 4, 2, preach the word. Tell me something, what is Timothy called to continue in? The word of God. And what's interesting is the word learned is the word uh, menthano. It is a verb. The noun form of that verb is the word disciple, methetes. And so we could accurately translate this, Timothy, continue in the things you were discipled in i.e. the word of God. And that verb continue is a present tense verb describing that, that Timothy is called to continually, persistently pursue learning God's word. It is an ongoing action of this man of God. And guess what? It should be the ongoing action of every Christian Who seeks to be capable to accomplish what God has in store for them? Christians are called to continually grow in the knowledge of God's word, just as Timothy is called to do. Look at verse 15. From childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, that the sacred scripture, point three, is sufficient to provide the wisdom necessary for salvation in Christ Jesus. However, Paul has more in mind than the bare bones of the gospel here. He's not just referring to salvation as justification, Paul is actually going to emphasize salvation as sanctification. Remember, the New Testament describes salvation in three different ways. Past tense, you were saved. Present tense, you are being saved. And future tense, you will be saved. Past, present, and future. And Timothy is called to focus. The the point of scripture that Timothy is called to learn in is going to be focused on that present element of salvation. Look with me at verse 16. All scripture, or every text of scripture, every word of God is inspired by God and profitable. Now, we love to focus on the inspiration, that first adjective, the inspiration part of God's word. And that is a good thing, the doctrine of inspiration is the process by which God oversaw the, competi- the composition of Scripture, guiding the authors to write exactly what he wanted without error. But Paul's emphasis is not on the inspiration of Scripture because Paul's audience would immediately have ident- identified with that. Paul's emphasis is on the latter part, sanctification, the second adjective, profitable, The inspiration of God's word is the premise of Paul's point. Paul is saying, because God's word is inspired, it is profitable for the people of God. And what follows are the four components of its profitability teaching. What do we teach? Truth. Reproof. What do we reprove? Falsehood. Correction. What do we correct? Wrong behavior. And training in righteousness. What do we train for? Right or righteous behavior. And so, what we see here is that the sacred scripture is our navigational tool for sanctification. It keeps us en route to our destination, subpoint one or A. So, what is that destination? Paul tells us in verse 17, this is the destination of every believer, so that the man or person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every good thing God wants to do in your life, Scripture is what's going to make you adequate for that. Scripture is going to, what is going to make you equipped for that. Everything you need in order to be what God intends you to be is found within the Scripture. So God's goal, through his word, is that you would be exactly suited, perfectly fitted, thoroughly equipped for what God is calling you to do and to be. It is scripture that makes you capable of becoming what God is calling you to become. I recently read a story about a soldier who landed on one of the southern Pacific islands during World War II and this native islander ran up to him proudly displaying his bible because it was written in his own language and the soldier kind of smirked and said yeah we've we've kind of gotten over that thing and the islander turned and looked at him and said we haven't and that's a good thing too cuz you would be a meal right about now <laughs> i've never gotten over the notion of the bible Divine revelation in my hand. The story of humanity, where it comes from, where it's going, the problem with humanity and the solution to humanity, the trajectory of all human history being summed up in Christ, where all this is going, this is God's word at our disposal. May we never get over the notion of God's holy, perfect, and profitable word. Let's put all this together. There are some people in the church that are self-servers who seek to seduce through error. And God says, no, they will be found out. They are rejected in regard to the faith. And then there are these truth teachers. Every Christian is a truth teacher. These are these selfless sufferers who by virtue of just seeking to live a godly life will experience persecution, opposition, marginalization. But God will deliver us all out of that, one way or another, and God puts his stamp of approval on it, he commends it and says yes to that. And we see the way that we are capable in our life to reach our God-given destination, to be what God is calling us to be, it is through the equipping power of God's holy word. It is sanctifying and it makes us capable. A few weeks ago, I borrowed my wife's car, and I keep a separate keychain for my truck and for her car, and as I was leaving, I remembered my wallet was in my truck, so I, I grabbed both sets of keys, one to unlock my truck and grab my wallet, the other to take my wife's car. Well, when I came home, my wife said she needed the car, so I returned one set back where it belonged, and I left the set to my truck in the car, which was now gone. And I was looking out the window, and I remember seeing my truck. It was still there. All four wheels were still there. The steering wheel was still there. There was a full tank of gas. Everything on it was fully functioning, except I didn't have a key. And without the key, I was going nowhere. A Christian can have all the right stuff. A Christian can be a part of the right church, have the right preacher, have the right friends, be able to fluently speak Christianese, yet if you do not read your Bible, you are going nowhere. A Christian that doesn't read their Bible is like a person with a car and no key. They're sitting still. And so I challenge you tonight that... uh, as we continue 2 Timothy, we have one more lesson for those who have been with us, and I challenge you that over this next week, to read this four-chapter book at least once before next Sunday. You can do that many ways. You can just read it all the way through every day. It would only take you 15 or 20 minutes. Or you could read chapter one on Monday, half a chapter two on Tuesday, half a chapter two on Wednesday, chapter three on Thursday, and chapter four on Friday. But I challenge you, as an evening service community, to read 2 Timothy before we meet next Sunday. That is my challenge to everyone in here. Read this book all the way through. And for those who will not be joining us next Sunday, I want to challenge you to make sure you're in your word on a regular basis. What hindrances are there? What's keeping you from getting in the word and why? Are you spending too much time on your phone, social media, Netflix, Prime, Hulu, hobbies? Are you taking too long to get ready in the morning? Carve out enough time to develop a habit of regularly being in the word. And I challenge you, I challenge everyone in here to continue in scripture. That is the application, continue in scripture. Joel, Joel and I are gonna sing a song. It's not a duet, don't worry, because we're all gonna sing a song, and I want to uh, let you know this is a song that you probably all know. It's a song I learned as a little boy that has never left me, and most of you probably know it too. So I'm gonna ask you all to stand, and we're just gonna, he's gonna start singing. (laughs) and uh, I think you'll get it. This was actually Karl Barth's favorite song, not the greatest theologian in the world, I know, but this was also his favorite song, and it's one of mine. Here we go. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, that you were so gracious to pass down this wonderful portal into your heart and mind. I pray, Lord, that we were taught tonight. I pray, Lord, that we were reproved tonight. I pray, Lord, that we were corrected tonight. And I pray that we were trained in righteousness tonight so that we would would become everything you are calling us to be. And it is through our Lord and for the sake of his name we pray. Amen.